Well, good morning, everyone. We're continuing on in our new series, Be Rich. And some of you know by now that we're not a health and prosperity kind of church where we're saying God wants everybody to be rich. The point of this series is rather to teach us how to be rich. Last week, many of us discovered for the first time that we are actually rich people. In fact, we titled the message last week, Congratulations, You're Rich. And we said that the way that we know we're rich is that when we compare ourselves to the rest of the world, we discover that if you make, if your household income is $48,000 a year, then you are now in the top 1% wage earners in the world. And for some of you, your, your household income is twice, three times, four times, some are five and even more times than that. So we recognize that we are, in fact, very wealthy. But some of you are sitting here today and you're saying, Pastor Alan, I don't feel very wealthy. Well, we're going to talk about that in just a few moments. We're going to discuss why it is many of us don't feel wealthy. We talked about some of the rich world problems, rich people problems that we have. In fact, Sheldon and Joel did an excellent job just reminding us of some of the rich problems that we have. And, and uh, thanks to Reese, uh, who helped us understand the plight of the first world youth. Um, I, think, I think you're getting a, a, the, the picture. Last week, I mentioned some of the things that, that trouble us. Uh, for instance, going through Tim Hortons, and you get through Tim Hortons, through the drive through you discover, wow, they got the order wrong. All they wanted was a cup of coffee and a cookie, and they got the wrong co- cookie and the wrong size coffee, and they didn't include the cream, or they, it was not double-double like I asked, and so on and so forth. We, we recognize that, in fact, that is a first world problem because there's people around the world, first of all, that don't have a vehicle and who can never afford to have a vehicle will never have a vehicle in their lifetime. There's people that the thought of going and spending $2 on a cup of coffee is just mind-boggling. They can't get their, their heads around that because where they live, uh, $2 is a day's wage. So we, we begin to understand that we here in, in the West, here in Canada, are in fact very wealthy. So I heard somebody say to me, you know, my phone, just is a, it's, just a, it's just a lousy phone, it's garbage. And I said, well, why is that? He said, well, I can only get one or two bars in the basement. Uh, folks, that is a first world problem. That's a rich people problem. Uh, some complain that their car has got rust spots on it, and others will complain that they only have an iPhone 5 and not an iPhone 6. Uh, these, are, these are rich people problems. So what I would like us to do is I'd like us to recognize, again, that we are, in fact, very wealthy compared to the standards of the rest of the world. So I'm going to ask a question today. Um, do you understand just how very rich you are? If, if you got to church this morning in a vehicle, you're, you're doing what the majority of the world cannot do. For many of you, you had a hard time figuring out, what should I wear to church this morning? Should I wear that outfit, this outfit, this? What shoes should I wear? This tells me that you've got far more than maybe you're even aware of, because there's many people in the world that don't even have one pair of shoes, never mind six or seven pairs. So last week, we began by saying what we want to do is we want to take up an offering over the next four weeks, uh, you will be given, or should have been given, an envelope that says, Be Rich. 
And the reason we made special envelopes is so that you know that every nickel, every penny that you put in that envelope goes strictly to the project that we're talking about today. And last week we talked about the Syrian refugee situation and, and specifically those Christians, those Christian Syrian refugees. I shared with you the sad irony of, of Muslim refugees and Christian refugees leaving Syria because of the persecution there by the Islamic State, we call it ISIS, and, uh, and by the government in Syria. And the, the irony was this, is that the Christians, the Christian refugees along with the Muslim refugees arrive in the country, their dest- destination, and the Christians are now being persecuted by the other refugees who are Muslims. It's a sad, very sad situation. So what we want to do as a church is we want to raise funds to especially help our brothers and sisters. We, we, we don't know any of them. We've never met them. We don't know them by name. But we do know that they're our brothers and sisters. They're part of the family of God, and we want to help them. So over the next few weeks, starting uh, last week, we've already got money that's come in. We're going to be collecting, uh, hopefully, we'll get everybody to give at least, a th- at least $30 each, and we can send a good chunk of money to help care for these refugees. Because I'm going to tell you right now, that we're hearing about refugee problems, but we're not hearing anything about the Christians who are being persecuted. Last week, we showed a video clip, and we showed you, demonstrated how the media has 100% ignored this global problem. It's a crisis now, I'm going to tell you, if it was any other people group, it would be all over the news. Every news outlet, every newspaper, every magazine would be saying, this has got to stop. This is scandalous. The UN would be involved. And, and, and nothing's being said. Christians are the number one persecuted group in the world. And so as Christians here in the West who understand that we're rich, we want to do the things that God is calling us to do. And that is, first of all, to reach out to those who are hurting. This Sunday, I want to present to you uh, something new. Is Dennis, Ron, Dennis, if you come on up here. Dennis uh, Perron is a principal, uh, one of the schools in the core area. And I've asked Dennis to come and share with you something that we can do as a church. And so, Dennis, if you wouldn't mind, uh, share, us, share with us how we can help you. Thank you, Pastor Allen. I'm a principal at William White Community School. It's at the corner of Power and Magnus in the North End. And uh, our small group decided to take up a clothing drive for the children there. It's a nursery to grade 8 school, grade ages 4 to 13, about 260, 270 kids. And um, so we could use coats, hats, gloves, mitts, uh, shoes even, boots, winter boots, because a lot of these kids come to school with inadequate clothing, or they don't come to school at all um, because it gets too cold. Uh, that's an excuse we hear from parents quite often. Um, Two-thirds of the families are single-income, mostly women leading these uh, families. Um, uh, 40% have less than grade 12 education. The median household income is less than $28,000. So half the households in the areas make less than that. And 40% of the households are below the low-income cutoff or below the poverty line. So um, if we can give uh, collect winter coats and stuff like that, we can uh, give them to families that need it. And you can just bring them to the church and uh, we'll make sure that they get into, um, in, onto the backs of kids who, who need coats. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dennis. Appreciate that so much. 
So we recognize then that we've got in our backyard something that very much resembles something of the third world. We want to be a church that reaches out, not just in our own backyard, but to the, to the uttermost parts of the earth. So, folks, if you, if you can get, or if you have in your possession uh, old coats, mitts, hats that are not being used, would you bring them in, gently used, maybe wash them if, if they haven't been washed yet? Um, bring them in, and we'll make sure that they get to the right place. And if you know people who know people, or if you know people who've got kids, if you know people, you're, maybe your neighbors, your friends, would you appeal to them? Uh, maybe if you could be so bold as maybe even write out a little flyer and deliver it to the people on your street. And let's gather up these coats, these hats, these mitts, and let's bless the poor kids in the very core area of our city. The other thing we want to do is the Brooklyn School, which is just uh, you know just a stone's throw away from our church, they have a breakfast program in their school. Every morning, these kids come to school with empty bellies. And uh, what they try to do there is they try to give these kids breakfast. So what we're going to ask you to do is we're going to ask you to bring a box of cereal to church. That's all it takes, just a box of cereal. And we're going to start piling them up here. And hopefully next week we can have a nice pile of cereal piled up here. But we want to meet all of Brooklyn School's uh, breakfast needs. So would someone say amen to that? Uh, a few more could say amen to that? Yeah, that we're getting there. We're getting there. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna get coats and hats and mitts. We're gonna get cereal and we're gonna bless the people in our neighborhood. And uh, again, the offering goes towards those Syrian refugees. Uh, last year, you know, we raised over thirty thousand dollars in for for hampers for um, for people that have very little. We sent hampers up north. Uh, we, we sent bags of hope to the Philippines. But this year, we're doing hats and mitts and coats and cereal. And we're doing this offering. And you're, we've got something we're going to present to you next week, too. But we want to understand, first of all, that we're rich and that we need to practice being rich, just in case some of us ever become rich. Would someone say amen to that? Amen. Yeah. Yes, Lord, bring it on. Bring it on. So you need to learn how to be rich because uh, we're not good at it. Frankly, uh, Canadians, uh, we're, we're not bad, but we're not really, really good at it. And you, you would think that amongst those who call themselves followers of Christ, you would think that there was maybe a greater degree of generosity, that there would be more generosity. Um, but the fact is, is that we're, we as Christians, we as followers of Christ, don't really give that much more than the average person. So I think that what you and I need to do is we need to come before the Lord and say, God, what do you want me to do, and how can I be as generous as possible? One of the things that came out of our small group last week is just the realization just how wealthy we really are here in North America. In fact, Gloria and I have been talking about it all week, and we are both really committed to trying to do even more than what we already do. And we are already generous people, but we know that there's so much more that we can do. You know, as your pastor, I would just be so thrilled, so delighted if the people of our church just ramped it up and stepped it up to brand new levels uh, if you could just recognize just how much you have and how much of a blessing you could be to others, um, wow, uh, that would that would just that would be worth it all. Um, the Apostle Paul, he uh, he had a a young man that he was mentoring. He was teaching how to how to do ministry and and how to deal with the people in his church and. And so he gives some very special instruction to Timothy. And he's, he says, Timothy, here's what you need to do. 
Timothy 1, 6 to 17. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. We're going to unpack this passage of Scripture this morning. But understand right off the bat, Paul is saying, those who are rich in your congregation actually need to be taught how to be rich. They need to be taught what to do with their wealth. They need to be taught how to handle it. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about how to handle the wealth that we have. Now, I know some of you are sitting here saying, Pastor Alan, you know, you say I'm wealthy, but I sure don't feel like it. Well, let's talk about that. Do you know that the more that Canadians make, the less they give? And this, is all, this can all be statistically proven, and you can go and Google it yourself after the service. Don't Google it now, but do Google it after the service, and do some research yourself, and you'll find that. The more that we make, the less that we give. I remember, uh, I remember uh, one, of the, one of the news agencies was, was reporting on the, the giving of Oprah. Has anybody ever heard of Oprah? Yes, a few, few of you? You know, she's one of the great, great preachers in North America. Some people listen to him like, she, like she's a preacher. And they, they, whatever she says, they hang on her every word. They were reporting on how much she was giving. And I thought, well, that's interesting. That sounds like a lot. And then what I did is I, uh, I Googled how much is Oprah, which, what is Oprah worth? And I, you, know what, you know what it came out to? Her giving and, as a percentage? We're talking about like, uh, like maybe less than 1%. Now, if you, look at, if you look at how much money she gave, you think, wow, that's a huge amount of money. I would be happy for the rest of my life if, I was, if that much money was dropped in my lap. But if you look at it as a percentage of how much money this woman earns every year and how much money she's got in a bank, you recognize that it's a very small amount of money. We're going to be talking about that next week. God works and thinks and talks in terms of percentages, which we'll talk about next week. But what you and I need to understand today is that with the wealth that we have, there are, in fact, side effects. And the first side effect of the wealth that you and I have is that we tend to live in denial. And by the way, we had, some, we had almost all fantastic feedback. We did have one or two that you know, took exception with the fact that I said that, that we're rich. They didn't like to hear that. That's one of the side effects of being, of being wealthy, of having wealth, is that we actually live in denial. Now, now, a tall person has no problem admitting, I'm a tall person. And a short person has no problem saying, you know, I'm, I'm relatively short. Uh, an extrovert will say, I'm an extrovert. An introvert will quietly say, I'm an introvert. They, they're they're very, very much willing to admit that. Uh, an athlete will be glad to admit that they're an athlete, and an artsy person will be glad to tell you how artsy they really are. But when it comes to wealth, we don't want to admit it. And the reason we don't want to admit it is because we look at others who are wealthier than us, and we think to ourselves, if I could be like him, well then yes, I would be in the same category. If I had as much as he had, then I would admit that I'm wealthy. But the fact of the matter is, is that... Nobody's rich, but everybody knows somebody who is. Hmm. Gallup did uh, a survey to discover, or try to discover, what people think about wealth. What do people think rich people earn? And how much do you have to earn to be considered you know, rich? 
And so here's, here's the amount that they came up with. They said if you earn $150,000, if you have a $150,000 salary, a six-figure income, then you would be considered rich. But when they asked those who had the six-figure income if they were rich, they said, no, we, we, we're not rich. Hmm. Those who earn $30,000 a year thought that a household income of $75,000 would qualify as rich. But when we ask those who earn the $75,000 a year if they're rich, they say, no, they wouldn't admit that they were rich. Money Magazine, they did a, a, a survey amongst their subscribers, and they asked their subscribers, how much money would you have to have in the bank, liquid assets, money that you could access at any time, how much money would you have to have in the bank before you could be declared, officially declared, rich? And here's what they said. Money subscribers, Money Magazine subscribers said, if you had $5 million in liquid assets, money that you could access at any time, then you were officially rich. Now, if you had a million dollars, they would say, well, no, you're not really rich. If you had two million dollars, anybody like a million dollars? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a pick me, pastor, I'll, t- I'll, do, I'll do it. If you had two million dollars, would you say that you were doing pretty good? What about three million? These people are saying if you make three million, if you have three million dollars in liquid assets, you're not rich yet. If you have four million dollars, you're not rich. If you have four and a half million dollars, you're not rich. But if you got five, well, then you are. You see, it's all relative, right? And we we never feel like we have enough. We never feel like where we are at is good enough. Rich is a moving target. The more money you have, the more money you think you need to have in order to become rich. So I'll say it again. At the end of the day, nobody's rich, but everybody knows somebody who is. Now, I want us to understand today that here in North America, we live in relative wealth compared to the rest of the world. One of the things that we did when every time we've been to Africa, I end up giving away the second pair of shoes that I bring with me because they literally don't have any shoes or the shoes they're wearing are literally threadbare. When's the last time you wore a pair of shoes until they were threadbare or until the tread was off? I tell you, not many of us have done that. And yet that's how people in third world countries live. So, if you earn, if your household income is forty thousand a year, well, you're in the top four percent. If your income, household income is forty-eight thousand dollars a year, well, now you're in the one percent of wage earners, the top one percent of wage earners in the world. So that's the first side effect: is that you start living in denial. You start saying, "Well, I'm not really rich." Here's the second side effect of being wealthy: rich people are plagued by a feeling of discontentment. You know what I mean by discontentment, right? It's a, you're never satisfied. It's not good enough. And the reason we're discontent is because the more a person has, the more they want. And it's called feeding an appetite. And everybody knows that when you feed an appetite, what happens? Your appetite grows. When you starve an appetite, what happens? Your appetite shrinks. And so here it is. Here we are in North America. Our wealth is going up constantly. 
And yet we're never happy. We're, we're always discontent. We always want more. Things are never quite good enough. And folks, it's for this reason that you will often hear of people who are wealthy going bankrupt. Huh? How on earth could a millionaire go bankrupt? What on earth happened? I'll tell you what happened. Is that with all that wealth became uh, an enormous appetite to get more stuff, new stuff, better stuff, faster stuff. They want to upgrade. They're obsessed with upgrades. Give me something new or give me something better. Give me something faster. Give me, give me the latest. Give me the, the greatest. And before long, they've spent themselves into an enormous hole, a hole that they can't climb out of. And we see millionaires declaring bankruptcy. It doesn't make any sense, does it? It doesn't make any sense until you understand the side effects of wealth. It leaves you feeling discontent. It leaves you feeling like you got to have more. Yeah. I don't know, does anybody ever get the phone call from the Diabetes Association? It's, it's actually not really the Diabetes Association. I think it's just Value Village saying, we want your junk, we want your stuff, and we'll come and pick it up for you, and then we'll resell it to people. And, you know, there's some people, like, like, like this is like almost like an illness. There's some people who are not happy unless they're out buying. I remember a pastor's wife. Uh, she, had, she, she loved little buttons and, and bumper stickers and that sort of thing. And so she said, you know, I got myself a new bumper sticker. And I thought, oh, I thought, you know, it would be something spiritual like uh, honk if you love Jesus. Anybody seen that one? Or else... Um, uh, uh, something to think Jesus is coming soon that, oh, that's a popular bumper sticker I don't know why people feel they need to put that on their bumpers but they, Jesus is coming soon maybe it's the way they drive, I don't know but uh, this woman, she put on her bumper um, shop till you drop anybody heard that? And I said, I'd never heard that expression before. I never heard that. And I said, do you really, like, do you really shop that much? She says, oh, well, that's what, that's what we do on our vacations. I said, do you do, I mean, you shop the whole time? Yeah, that's what we do the whole time. So don't you actually go to see a show or go and, no, we, shopping is what we love to do. And if I can go with my daughters, that's even better. Hmm. That's interesting, isn't it? That somebody who's in the ministry, somebody who's a follower of Jesus Christ, finds their greatest fulfillment in shopping. And not just shopping for what they need, but shopping until they're dropping. we got a problem there, folks. It's a problem of discontentment. Now, the amazing thing is that when these guys come around to take away your used stuff, you actually feel good about it. You think, you know what, I'm giving, I'm giving stuff to the poor, to people who can't afford it. Imagine feeling great about giving stuff that you don't want, giving it away. Imagine giving stuff that you want to people. But no, we're giving stuff away that we don't want anymore. Imagine that, feeling good about giving somebody stuff that you don't want. But you know what? This is our culture now. This is what it means to live in North America. We've been living in our house for 10 years, and guess what's happened over the course of 10 years? The carpet's not the popular kind of carpet anymore. It's now shag. I never thought I'd ever see shag carpet. Anybody over 50, you know what I'm saying? Did you ever think you'd ever see shag again? But it's, it's back. Our, our kitchen cabinets, the wood is the wrong color. 
And so, you know, we're looking at all the, there's, how many know that there's all kinds of magazines out there that tell you what your kitchen ought to look like? If you're one of the cool kids, you don't have blonde colored wood because that's passe. You need to get the latest. And so here's what happens. People go into debt, now, rich people now going further into debt because their kitchen is not cool anymore. Home Depot makes millions upon, like hundreds of millions of dollars off of people needing to get a new kitchen. And so what happens? You have perfectly good cabinets, perfectly good countertops, perfectly good appliances, and now what do we have to do so that we look cool? is that we throw out perfectly good cabinets, we throw out perfectly good countertops, and we throw out perfectly good appliances. There's something really wrong with this picture, folks. I'm telling you, the third world looks at the way we live, they shake their heads, and they can't even begin to imagine that kind of wealth. And the fact is, folks, it's just a sign of discontentment. People trading cars for other cars, cars that work perfectly fine. People drive onto a parking lot with a car that actually still smells new, but they gotta have the latest, and what they do is they drive up that, that car that's still brand new, and they get themselves another brand new car and pay lots more money for it. People stand in line at the Apple store, text their friends from their iPhones that they're in line for a new iPhone. Are you kidding me? Really? They stand in front of a closet full of clothes and then they complain. You don't have anything. Yeah. Yeah. We got a problem here. I got nothing to wear. But in fact, what they've got is they've got work clothes. They got after work clothes. They got workout clothes. They've got work in the garden clothes. There's no shortage of clothes. What's the problem? The side effect of wealth, folks, is denial and it's discontent. So the Apostle Paul, in this passage of Scripture that we're looking at this morning, reminds us of what we need to do and how we need to handle the wealth that God has given us. And Paul is really saying to us, look, if you've got wealth, you're at risk. You're at risk spiritually. Look at this. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be what? Say it. Arrogant. Arrogant. What does that mean, arrogant? Well, it means to be proud, right? It means to be proud. It means I'm self-sufficient. I don't need anybody. I'm better than you. Paul warns against this because I'm going to tell you, those who've got money, that's one of the very first things that you're going to deal with. Humility is not usually associated with rich people. Have you noticed that? With that money comes power and it comes entitlement. Money makes us feel superior to. It makes us feel better than. It's so deceitful. Money makes people feel that they're smarter than everybody else. Have you ever noticed that? If there's a rich person in the room and everybody knows that person's rich, everybody just sort of gathers around them and there's sort of a a silent awe, a reverence as everybody hangs on every word that comes out of the rich person's mouth, as if that person was some sort of a paragon of, of, of wisdom and, and virtue. I mean, he must be smart if he's rich, right? Well, just talk to a few hockey players, a few football players, a few basketball players, and you'll see that 
Wealth doesn't always come with intelligence. We think our wealth reflects something um, superior about us. It's interesting that the highest compliment a rich person could get is, you know, you wouldn't even know he was rich. He's got a ton of money, but you wouldn't know it. Now, why is that a compliment? Well, you know. Because if you got money, you tend to be proud. You tend to be arrogant. And the Apostle Paul knows this. You think that you, you finally arrived. You think that you, you've got it all together. Have you noticed that people who are really rich, they dress a certain way, they drive a certain kind of vehicle, they wear certain kinds of jewelry, they, they got the latest haircut. I was just reading uh, about a place in London, downtown London, where you could get your hair done. Guess what it costs to get your hair done? $3,000. And what you do, this is good. What you do is you go in for, first of all, they won't even cut your hair the first time you go in. You have to go in for a consult. And what they'll do is they'll look at the shape of your head. Hmm. And after the consult, then you'll come back. And then you'll have your hair cut. And then they'll say, well, this is the place where Lady, Di- Lady Diana got her hair cut. So therefore, it's worth $3,000. And then you could go and tell everybody, you know where I got my hair cut? And you are assuming that everyone will be very impressed with you. But if you've got any brains in your head, you'll think, what a moron. $3,000 for a haircut. I mean, what you could do is just... Have you ever seen it advertised on TV, the Floby? Connect it to your vacuum cleaner, go over your head, and it's done. For one, for one time, easy payment of $19.99. And we'll even throw in a pair of scissors. Folks, think about this for a minute. There's an arrogance that goes with having money. I want to tell you, when I go over to Africa, I feel like a millionaire. Dennis, I know you feel the same way. And others of you have been over there. You feel, and I'm going to tell you, they all think of you as some kind of a brilliant, brilliant person. Smart and not just rich, but smart and capable. And, and they, somehow you have been given every virtue under the sun. I'm going to tell you, folks, it's a real ego trip when you go over to Africa. Because they wait on you. They want to grab my, my briefcase out of my hand and carry it for me. So give me back my briefcase. But they want, to, they want to carry it for you because if they can carry your, your briefcase, well, you're carrying the briefcase of the guy from Canada who's so rich and so smart and so capable. And here in North America, in case you don't know how rich we are, we buy certain vehicles, we buy bigger houses, and we go on certain kinds of vacations, and we try to get in the circles of certain kinds of people because we know that if we can be friends with him, and if we can drive that kind of a car, and if we can live in that house, in that neighborhood, then people will know how brilliant we are. Folks, it's terribly risky having wealth. And that's why we need to teach you here at Cross Church how to handle it if it should ever come to you. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. A humble person is so refreshingly shocking, aren't they? 
Why do we as rich people struggle with, with arrogance? Well, Paul takes us to the root of the problem. Look at this, verse 17 uh, of 1 Timothy 6. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, watch this, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is what? So, say it, uncertain. It's so uncertain. Oh, we forget that, don't we? We forget just how uncertain our wealth is. What does that word hope mean? It means to, to lean on. Paul says, teach the people who are rich not to lean on their wealth. In other words, not to depend on it. The richest and wisest man of his day, King Solomon, listen to what he says in Proverbs 18, verse 11. He says, the wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it is a wall too high to scale. What is, what is Solomon saying? Who, when he wrote this, was the richest man in the world and also the wisest man in the world. What's he saying? He's saying people who've got money, they think that they are impregnable, that there's no way that anybody can touch them, that no disaster can come near them. They think that if they have enough money, well, they'll be safe. They'll be safe against anything that this world could throw at them. Wow. The rich person tends to become less and less generous because now he's put his hope in his wealth. And he can't give it away now because he's depending on his wealth to keep himself. Whereas if you're poor, you've got no problem giving away your money because you weren't depending on it in the first place. The poor person (laughs) understands that wealth is an illusion. The wealthy person sees it as the fortified, the fortification a wall too high to scale. They're safe behind your money. Folks, this is a huge risk. Because now what's happened is that you have moved your hope in God to a hope in money. Can I ask you a question this morning? How much money, how much money would you need to secure your future against all imaginable eventualities? How much money would you need to have in your bank account? Some say, well, if I can just pay my house off, if I just had enough, you know, you know 500000 in my bank account for my retirement, uh, if I could just have this much money. How much money do you think you'd need? And I can tell you this, it's more than you currently have. And it'll never be enough. So what do we do with this information? How do we live so that our hope is not in our money and our hope is in fact in God? Because here's the thing. When wealth becomes your hope, you're going to, be, you're going to feel compelled to hoard. I can't give it away. I've got to keep it safe. I've got to build it up. I've got to make sure that I, but my house is paid off. I've got to make sure that I have a house for my kids and pay off the kids' houses. And I've got to make sure that there's enough money for the retirement. I've got to make sure that there's enough, there's enough, there's enough. And now... Suddenly, we're playing God, and we think that we got to take care of ourselves. Which then brings us to the third risk, is that now your hope is migrating from God to your money. Look again at that passage of Scripture, 1 Timothy 6.17. Look at this. Paul says, teach them not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. But what? But... Teach them to put their hope in God. Now what happens? 
Well, I'll tell you what happens. Wealth has become a substitute for God. And I'm going to tell you something. If you haven't learned this yet, you're going to have to learn this like really quick. Otherwise, you are going to struggle with this for the rest of your life. There will always be competition for your heart. And the competition is between God and money. In fact, Jesus even says that, doesn't he? He says that in uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. Take a look at that. Matthew 6, 24. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. And the two masters being money or God. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money because Jesus says you're going to love one and hate the other or hate the other and love the other. Can I ask you a question today? Who do you love? Or what do you love? I can help you figure that out. I can help you figure out whether or not your hope in God has migrated to money by asking you a simple question. I can help you figure out today whether or not your hope really is in God. What would happen if I said to you, don't put, the, don't put the slide up yet, just listen to this. What would happen if I told you there's no God? He doesn't exist. Does that cause you anxiety at all? Now, what would happen if I told you that you have no money, that all your assets no longer exist? Would that cause you anxiety? And the sad fact of the matter is, you can put the slide up now, the sad fact of the matter is, folks, for some of us, for many of us, The second statement is far more troubling to us than that first statement. We're far more concerned, far more worried about our money no longer existing than we are, but whether God exists or not. You've heard me say this many times. For 30 years in the ministry, I've been at the deathbed of many people who are facing literally their last hours, their last days. And not once in 30 years have I ever had anybody say to me, Pastor Allen, I got to tell you something. I got to confide something in you, Pastor Allen. And when I hear that kind of, I mean, hear that kind of language all the time. But I can tell you what I never hear. I never hear people say, Pastor Allen, I'm really disappointed in myself. I'm disappointed that my bank account's not bigger. I never hear that. I never hear anybody say, Pastor Allen, I'm so disappointed. I wasn't able to buy a bigger house. I always wanted to live in tuxedo. Pastor Allen, I always wanted to have a Mercedes Benz. I'm so disappointed. And now I'll be dead in just days or just hours. Nobody ever says that. But I can tell you what they do say. Is that I wish I would have spent more time getting to know God. I wish I would have spent more time in the word of God. I wish I would have spent more time with my wife, with my kids, with my husband. You see... There's nothing like facing the end of life to discover what really matters. Having wealth means that there's side effects. You're probably going to be denying that you have wealth, and you're probably going to be living very discontentedly. Not only is there side effects, folks, there's risks involved. There's a risk of arrogance. There's a risk of putting your hope in your money, of your of your faith in God migrating to a faith in your money. Where are you at right now spiritually? Have you become so discontent that you really don't have time to help others in need? Because I can tell you, 
that Jesus tells us clearly that the evidence, that the true evidence that you are a follower of Jesus Christ is that you are generous, that you're a giver, that you're prepared and willing to help those in need. I I hear of my brothers and sisters in third world countries who have been left destitute simply because at some point in their life they put their faith in Christ or because they were born into a Christian family. And based on that alone, they're discriminated against. And then I think of us here in Canada. Where for some of us, someone was telling me the other day, they go through Tim Hortons drive through two and sometimes three times a day. And for some people, that represents a whole week, a whole week in terms of earnings. Folks, you and I have got a sacred, a moral obligation to think about how we're living our lives. And so I'd like to pray with you right now and ask that God would make you generous. Would you stand with me, please? Let's pray. God, we pray right now for the grace and the strength and the wisdom to live the lives you called us to live. Lives that mirror the generosity of our God. God, there's so many people who are broken and hurting and in need and in darkness right now. And we have been given so much. And we hear your words echoing in our minds. To to whom much is given, much is required. The one who's been given much, much is required of that person. So God, we pray today that you give us the grace and the strength to truly live this Christian life that we say we're living. Help us, God, to stop pretending. Help us, God, to stop being hypocrites. Help us, God, to be serious about following Jesus Christ with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we give you thanks today, Lord, that we live in Canada in a land of great wealth. Now, God, we pray, give us the grace to be generous and to give. And we pray that in your name. And everyone said it with me. Tell the person beside you, don't forget to give.